Hey everyone, so if you remember in the last video I read a story called My Entire Life Went to Hell After I Moved in My New Apartment. I didn't know at the time that there were two other parts to that story, so that's what we're going to read first for tonight's video. The first part is included, but I will include timestamps if you've already read that one or listened to it, so you can just skip right on over it. Let's get started. My entire life went to hell after I moved into my first apartment. I was overjoyed when they accepted my bid and I bought an apartment on the top floor. It was always my dream to live on a top floor apartment so that I would never have to put up with noisy upstairs neighbors. My family had spent years living under a large family who never stopped stomping around, even at night. It took me about two weeks to get all my stuff moved in as I had collected a lot of things over the years. Most of it wasn't worth anything, but it just had a sentimental value for me. I installed a few bookshelves and filled them with all my favorite authors. My Stephen King collection alone took up over three shelves, as I'd been reading his books for years. A week after moving, I threw a party and invited a few of my friends, and also invited most of my neighbors. I spared no expense and bought tons of food and drink. I could see the envy on a few of their faces as they walked around the state-of-the-art apartment. A few of my guests stood on the balcony and marveled at the beautiful, picturesque view of the island. Everyone congratulated me, told me that they hoped I'd throw parties like this again. I'd assured them that this was my forever home. They were welcome back at any time. It was about 5 a.m. when the last house guest stumbled out of my apartment. I spent the next few minutes cleaning up the mess before heading to bed as I was exhausted from running around and entertaining my guests all night. I was woken early the next morning by an explosion that shattered my bedroom window. I dove for cover into the bathroom as there were no windows in there. I hid in there for a couple of hours before finally mustering up the courage to see what was going on. I walked slowly out under the balcony after throwing on a pair of shoes to protect from the glass. My mouth was hanging open as I gazed out across the island. I could see smoke billowing from a large number of buildings as fires gutted them. I could see many people in other buildings gazing around with the same shocked reactions on their faces. The streets below seemed to be teeming with people as they fled from whatever was happening. I grabbed my binoculars and watched as fights began to break out on the streets as people were fleeing. I almost dropped them as I watched people begin biting each other's throats out. The building shook as another explosion nearby rocked it. I quickly stepped inside and ran to grab the telephone. There was no dial tone, so I placed the phone back on the hook and gazed around at my once pristine apartment. I grabbed a sweeping rush and gathered up all the glass and threw it in the bin. I quickly did an inventory of my food and drink situation and was glad to discover that I had enough supplies for at least a week. I noticed that the light in the fridge wasn't working and discovered to my dismay that the power was gone. I ran over to my phone and realized that I hadn't charged it last night, and it only had about 25% battery left. I had to try and use it as little as possible. I heard screams outside my apartment, and as quietly as possible, walked over to the door. I used a peephole to watch as my neighbor was being attacked by his children, who seemed to be biting him. One of my other neighbors opened their door to see what was happening and the children ran at her and began to rip into her flesh. After 30 seconds, the children's father slowly got to his feet 
and joined them in attacking the woman. I moved away from the door and stared once more out the window. It was getting very dark outside, and I was surprised to see that it was almost 7 p.m. My stomach started to rumble to remind me that I haven't eaten anything yet, so I went to the fridge and threw together a simple meal. After finishing the food, I went out and sat on the balcony and watched as the island slowly descended into chaos. There were screams every now and again which were abruptly cut off as something or someone sliced the screamer. I used the binoculars and gazed across at other buildings and saw no one alive. I saw one man who had hung himself and his body still seemed to be twitching. Many of the apartments I could see seemed to have bloodstains. Eventually I could feel my eyes begin to droop and decided it was time to get some sleep. It took me a long time before I fell asleep and I woke up a couple of times after having nightmares. The next morning I awoke as a cold breeze blew through my bedroom due to the missing window. I grabbed my binoculars and used them to try and spot anything, but there was a mist in the air that meant I could only see a short distance. I walked over to the door and looked out, but the hallway looked clear. I went back to the kitchen and grabbed the sharpest knife I could find. I took a couple of deep breaths before turning the handle and stepped outside. The only sound I could hear was the pounding of my own heart. There were bloodstains covering the floor outside my neighbor's apartment where he'd been attacked by his children. I quickly, but quietly, walked down to the end of the hallway past a couple of closed doors. I knelt down on the ground and peeked around the corner. My neighbor lay in a pool of his own blood around the corner with his children lying just beyond. Whatever had killed them was now long gone, so I decided to return to the safety of my apartment. I spent the next few days doing the same routine of gazing out but not seeing anything alive. Slowly but surely, my food supplies began to dwindle. As I gazed down at what was left, I knew it was time to leave. I began to pack up what I thought would be useful. I made up a holster and slid a couple of knives in case I needed them and grabbed my dad's old baseball bat before heading to the door. The power was out, so that meant the elevators were not working, so I'd have to travel down 13 floors using the stairwell. I looked out the peephole and saw that the coast was clear and pulled open my door. I carefully opened the door and listened, but the building was deathly silent. I walked down the blood-stained corridor until I reached the turn. I peered around the corner and the hallway was mostly empty, apart from the bodies of my neighbors and his children. I could see the door to the stairs at the end of the corridor, but I had to walk past a number of rooms and a few of the doors were open. I waited for what seemed like an eternity to see if anything moved, but Nothing happened. I walked down the hallway and looked into each room, but they all appeared empty. I stopped and stared into the last room for almost a minute. I stared at my neighbor Alan as his body hung from the ceiling and couldn't help but remember that we chatted away at the party. He told me that his wife Sheila was pregnant and was due any day now. 
I couldn't see any sign of his wife and didn't want to go anywhere near his corpse, so I turned away and headed toward the stairs. I opened the door and was met with almost pitch blackness inside as emergency lights had obviously run out of power. I closed the door and sat down outside, trying to decide what to do. Going into that darkness was my only way to escape, but I had nothing to see with. I quickly made a decision and went back to the apartment with my neighbor's body. I went rooting through his drawers and was relieved when I found a flashlight that was working. Practically jumped for joy when I discovered a USB charger and quickly plugged in my phone. I checked for the news reports, but none of them were mentioning what was happening. I went back to the stairs and shone the light down. It looked like a scene out of a horror movie as the stairs were covered in blood and entrails. I almost puked, but managed to stop myself. Using the flashlight, I began to make my way down the steps. I managed to get down at least six floors when I slipped on something and fell back and in my head. I don't know how long it was before I regained consciousness. I reached behind my head and felt a wet stain, but was unsure if it was my blood or someone else's. I searched for the flashlight, but was unable to find it. I sat in this outer darkness and didn't know what to do. I heard a footstep somewhere above me, which forced my hand. I began to slowly and carefully climb down the stairs. I held onto the rail as it helped me steady my balance. I almost slipped a few times after stepping in a liquid that I assumed was blood, but the rail kept me standing. I'd gotten down two or so floors when I heard a sound right in front of me. I immediately froze and tried to stay as silent as possible. I almost screamed as something brushed against me. Whatever it was, I started sniffing the air and letting out growling noises. As carefully as I could, I reached into my pocket and pulled out a pen and threw it behind me. Even in the darkness, I thought I could see the creature's eyes as it rushed past me and went hunting for the sound of the noise. I waited a minute and began my journey again. It seemed like an eternity before I finally reached the bottom step. I sat down for a few minutes to catch my breath and listen out for any other movement, and when I was sure there wasn't anyone down here with me, I began to slowly edge my way along the wall toward where I thought the door was. I let out a sigh of relief when I found the door handle, knowing that I was finally free from this prison. I began to pull on the door and started to panic when it didn't move. It took me a couple of seconds to realize I was being a complete idiot and that I needed to push. I let out a little giggle as I felt like such an idiot. The door seemed to be stuck on something, and no matter how hard I pushed, it would barely move. I decided to eat some of my supplies, as I hadn't eaten anything since leaving my apartment. I ate what meager supplies I had and hoped to find some more food soon. As I was moving around stuff in my bag, I must have knocked one of the knives loose as it fell to the ground, causing a deafening sound in this enclosed spot. Seconds later, there was a roar above me as a creature began to make its way down toward me. I managed to find the door once again and began to shove with all my strength. I could hear the creature getting closer with each passing second, and I knew that I was dead unless a miracle happened. Just as I was about to give up hope, I felt the door slowly begin to move, and inch by inch, it opened. 
and there was enough space for me to escape. I climbed through. There was another scream behind me, and I turned around to slam the door. I saw the creature for only a few seconds, but instantly recognized who they were. Sheila's pregnant belly had been ripped open by something, and he could see her baby moving around inside. I leaned up against the door. Sheila tried to get at me, but she thankfully gave up after a few seconds. I reached down and moved the table that had been pushed up against the door back into place. I looked around the lobby and was surprised at how neat and tidy everything seemed. I checked my supplies and was relieved to see that I had still two of my knives and hadn't lost the baseball bat. I looked over at the vending machine and realized it was fully stocked with food. A quick swing from my bat and all my food supplies were fully replenished. I walked over to the front desk and grabbed a few maps. I looked around the lobby one last time and began to walk toward the main entrance and freedom. I gazed out the clear glass windows of the lobby and the street outside looked clear. I cautiously pulled the door open and stepped outside. I had to cover my eyes as I gazed around as the sun was blinding. I'd been looking forward to some fresh air, but all I could smell was rotting flesh. The lobby entrance was on a side street, so I slowly began to make my way toward the main street. I walked past the car and almost puked after gazing inside. There was an infant who was no older than three months, and their body looked withered after being trapped in a hot car for days. I let out a scream as the child turned its head toward me and seemed to snarl. I thought about opening the car and putting the child out of its misery, but the thought revolted me. I moved past the car and reached the street corner. I peeked my head around the corner and immediately jerked my head back. Some of the creatures were standing in the middle of the street, but they had been looking the other way and hadn't spotted me. I peeked out once more to get a better look at them. Most of their clothes were covered in blood, possibly theirs, but more than likely someone else's. One of them was missing half of its head as something seemed to have caved it in. I looked across the street and saw there was another side street which looked clear. I'd have to run across without any cover and pray that they didn't see me. I decided to just go for it and sprint across. I somehow managed to trip over my own two feet and fell just before I reached the far side. I froze for a few seconds and gazed up to see all the creatures staring at me. They all began to move toward me. I stood up and almost fell straight back down as my ankle was in agony due to how I landed. I managed to start moving and begin to move as quickly as I could. Their footsteps sounded so close behind me. I didn't dare look back in case I fell once again. I dodged into an open doorway and closed it behind me. I watched as they moved past my location and I finally breathed a sigh of relief when they had all finally passed. I sat down on the ground so that my ankle could have some rest. I pulled out the maps that I'd found in the lobby and discovered that it was only a ten minute walk from the docks. There were a couple of options available to get there. There was the most direct route which would mean walking down the main street or going through the park. The park was probably the best option as there were escape options if something went wrong. 
I tried to stand once more and almost screamed in pain due to this pain in my ankle. I removed my trainers and was horrified at how swollen it looked. I decided it might be a good idea to sleep here for the night as there was no way I could walk like this. I woke the next morning and was relieved when I saw that the swelling had gone down. I was able to walk, but would still have to be careful. I walked out on the street and was about to start heading to the park when I noticed something waving at me. I made my way over and was surprised that it was a young girl of about 12 called Sarah with her baby sister Molly. She begged me to take them with me and I reluctantly agreed. She explained that her parents had gone to get them food a few days earlier and hadn't returned. She had seen them earlier today and they had been turned into those creatures. She decided to take her little sister and try to get to somewhere safe. I had to carry the younger sister as she was too young to walk by herself. We peered in the park and everything looked clear. We moved as carefully as we could and tried to stick to the edges of the park. Molly began to cry and I tried to quiet her, but she refused to stop. We were so engrossed with trying to keep her silent that neither of us noticed we'd been cornered. I had no idea where the creatures had come from so suddenly, but they were all around us. Many of their faces were scarred and were missing limbs. They slowly began to move in, and before I could react, Sarah was dragged away and they began ripping into her flesh. I knew that I only had one chance to escape, but I didn't want to do it. As the creatures began moving toward me, I threw Molly at them. Her screaming distracted them long enough for me to rush past them. I felt nails scrape my arm as I moved. I rushed out of the park and quickly ran into cover. I stayed hidden for an hour, but nothing came out of the park after me, as they were probably still eating. I began to move toward the docks once again and was more conscious of my surroundings. I passed through a number of buildings that had been gutted by fires and dozens of bodies that had been ripped apart. I was ecstatic when I finally reached the docks and there were a couple of boats still there. I decided on a rowboat as it was easiest to use. I quickly loaded up my belongings and began to row. I was almost knocked out of the boat as something hit the side. I gazed over the side and saw a fin swim by. There were sharks all around the boat as the water was full of dead bodies. I tried to use one of the oars to hit the sharks to hopefully drive them off, but managed to drop it in the process. It floated out of my reach before I could get to it. Another thump to the side of the boat threw me forward, and I was dismayed to see that the boat was slowly letting in water. I gazed around and knew that I had no options as the docks were now impossible to reach due to all the sharks surrounding me. I decided to use my phone and tell my story. Please do not judge me for my actions as I already know what I did was wrong. I have enough food and water for at least two days. So I'll just sit here and wait until the end. He only eats the best of us. I worked as a social worker for 12 years out on the East Coast. 
I saw children that were mistreated, women that were abused, and plenty of others that had mental health problems, bad judgment, or worse luck. So many people suffering. And you get invested and try to help them and leave it at the job so it doesn't eat you alive when you go. And for the most part, I was good at compartmentalizing that kind of stuff. But then... Five months before I quit and moved across the country, I met a young, traumatized woman, and everything changed. Her name was Haiti McGovern, and she was a college student who had been attacked the night before as she crossed through a park on the way to her neighborhood. When I saw her, she was on the first day of three days of observation. She had injuries, sure, but they were largely just cuts and abrasion to her scalp. And what she was saying didn't exactly make sense. When we were alone and I was finished telling her about the government services she might benefit from, I asked her if she wanted to talk about what had happened. I'd heard enough from the nurse outside to know that it would be wild, but I had no idea of the details until she began to speak in her soft, hoarse voice. She said she'd been halfway through the park, walking at a fast pace because she planned on taking a shower and then heading back out to meet some friends and was running behind, when she realized an older man was walking next to her. Well, not next to her, she said, but about 50 feet away, traveling across the grass, stepping over hedges and sidewalks without slowing or even looking at where he was going. Instead, he was just keeping pace with her step for step and staring at her with a wide smile that made him look like a skull between his pale skin and bald head. This freaked her out, of course, and she began walking faster. She didn't run, she said, because she felt like it was kind of like running from a bear. You shouldn't show weakness or fear, but just get away before things went from weird to bad. So she turned to look where she was going and to see if she saw any people closer to her apartment complex a block away. There was no one, and when she looked back to where the man had been, he was gone. That's when she felt a hand plunging into her long blonde hair and pulling her to the ground. I'd known it was going to be something about her hair. Her injuries, other than a bruise on her throat and a couple of other scrapes, were all on her head. Dozens of oozing places where the strange bald man had held her down and roughly cut off all of her hair with a straight razor. Crying softly, she showed me a picture of her the week before. Long, curly hair, the color of summer honey, framed her then-smiling face. A past her that didn't know what was about to happen. The version of her before me looked ten years older and broken in some fundamental way. Sniffing back tears, she said that when the man yanked her to the ground, the breath went out of her, but she immediately started trying to get up and get away. That he had grabbed her by the throat and held her back down, but just for a moment, just long enough that... He could spit in her face. A.D. said it made no sense, but after he did that, she couldn't move anymore. Not at all. The girl told me the doctors had tried to say it was shock or fear, but she said that was bullshit. She was paralyzed by the thick, foul-smelling wad he'd spat onto her face, and even him producing the straight razor from a hidden pocket didn't get her moving beyond the hammering of her heartbeat. He never said anything 
just smiled, and he began gripping handfuls of her hair and scraping them off her scalp. I asked her if it hurt, and she gave me a watery laugh. She said that sure, it did, but that wasn't the worst part. It was feeling so violated and having a part of her taken away. Even more than the fear of what he might do after, that feeling had been the worst. When he rolled her over onto her stomach to cut the rest of her hair off, she felt the first tingles of movement starting to come back. Not enough to really move, but some small, stirring twitches. She decided to wait, let it come back more, and then try to run when the opportunity came or when he was distracted. Not that she was just sitting and waiting for him to do whatever he wanted. Every moment she was tensed to try to fight if she saw the blade coming for her neck or he tried to take her clothes off. She just knew that she couldn't really move or fight yet, and she wanted him to either go slow or just stop and leave her alone. He chose the latter. When he had cut off the last of her hair, he scooped up the pile next to her head and walked a few feet away out of her line of sight. She heard some kind of gasping, choking sound then, and while it took all her strength, she managed to turn her head slightly to see what he was doing. He was eating her hair. All of it. Golden fistfuls were crammed in, one after the other as he chewed and gasped and choked and swallowed. The sound was disgusting, but seeing it was worse. She said it scared her worse than before, though she couldn't have said why. And it was then, as she lay frozen and horrified, that the man suddenly let out a gasping groan and toppled over into the grass. He lay there twitching for what felt like a minute or two, and though from her angle she couldn't see his face, she felt like he was either having a seizure or choking to death. She hoped for the latter, but didn't dare rely on that. Forcing her limbs to move, she got to her hands and knees and started to crawl out to the street. Everything felt weird and slow, but she started making progress, periodically looking back to see if the man was still out. First time. Still down and twitching. Second time. He was sitting up and staring at her. It was at this point that she started shaking and crying harder, so after waiting a couple of minutes, I asked questions to prompt her. Did he come for her again? No, she said. They looked at each other, he gave her another smile, and she started crawling faster while screaming her head off. The guy was jogging down the other side of the street and came over to help when she looked back the next time. Her attacker was gone. Thank God, I said. She nodded in mute agreement, but I could tell that there was something more when I asked. She paused a long time before shaking her head. You'll think I'm a crazy liar, just like they do. I had to reassure her that I wouldn't think any such thing several times before she'd finally told me the rest. When he sat up, when I saw him that last time, he wasn't bald anymore. He had long, curly hair. Blonde hair, just like mine. He... He ate my hair and stole it from me. Over the next couple of months, 
I checked on her case. AD had been moved back to Wisconsin to be with her family, and while her physical wounds were healing well enough, she still had emotional issues she was working through from the attack. When I called her mental health counselor at her new college, she tried to talk very broadly and not give me any details, but toward the end of the conversation, she did let one slip. <sighs> Poor dear. It's so strange how her hair won't grow back. It was another month and a half before I saw the graffiti. I normally took a bus home to just two blocks from my work, but one day my normal bus line was delayed due to an accident, so I had the choice of paying for a taxi or walking further to a different stop. I picked the latter, and while the neighborhood I traveled through didn't seem especially rough or dangerous, it was more run down than the places I'd worked or lived. More closed businesses and unkempt lots and graffiti scattered along the walls here and there. It was when I was nearing the bus stop that I had to walk under an overpass bridge that had more colorful drawings and sayings, insults and boasts. Yet among that riot of lines and squiggles, one thing stood apart, as though none of the rest wanted to be close to the single line written in simple letters of dark red. He only eats the best of us. A year earlier, I would have laughed at the line, wondering if it was a social commentary or a line from a movie, but walking through that patch of shadow as the words burned down at me from above, my mind immediately went to Haiti, and I walked faster until I reached my stop. When I reached it, I looked back, and that's when I saw him. A thin, pale man with flowing blonde hair. I might have let out a little scream right then, I, I don't remember. I do recall turning back to the street, thinking I needed to call a taxi or get someone's attention when I saw the bus turning the corner a block down and nearly cried in relief. Running to meet it, I jumped on as soon as the doors opened and when I looked back I saw no sign of the man anywhere. Heart pounding, I scanned my pass and took a seat in the middle of the bus. It was only half full, but the comfort of being around other people, even total strangers, was undeniable. I felt like a gazelle hiding in the herd from a stalking lion. The dramatic flare of the thought made me laugh. Wasn't I overreacting? Had I really seen the man or had I just imagined it because I was tired and taking a strange route that made me uneasy? Glancing at my phone, I guessed my nearest stop to home would be about 20 minutes away. After a moment's debate, I set my phone alarm for 15 in case I dozed off, though that seemed unlikely given the panic I'd felt moments before. I might not ever sleep. I woke up to words being spoken next to my right ear. You have lovely eyes. I jumped in my seat and started to turn around when I froze. The evening had fully come on by now, and the windows of the bus were all black with the growing night outside. In the reflection of the window closest to me, I could not only see myself, but who had spoken to me. It was the old blonde man leaning against my ear like a whispering lover. In my reflection, my terrified gaze found his milky eyes hanging like infected moons above his sickly, sickle smile. He held me with that look a moment before rasping out the words again. 
You have lovely eyes. My fear broke the spell this time, and I jumped out of my seat and rushed to the front, yelling for the driver to let me out. Let me out now, goddammit. Looking surprised and irritated, he pulled at the curb, even as my phone alarm went off. I was just two blocks away now, and I wasn't above running the entire way. So that's exactly what I did. I jumped off the bus as the doors opened, pulling off my heels and running barefoot down the sidewalk for two blocks to my building. I never looked back the entire time, and it wasn't until I was behind my door that the deadbolt was thrown, and that I took a breath or dared to look back out through the peephole. I saw no sign of anyone out there, and when I went to my windows to look for any sign of the old man following me, I found none. Good. It was maybe a coincidence. Even if it was Hades' guy, he could have followed me all the way home, not with how fast I was... There was a knock on the door. Stifling another scream, I crept back to the door, not wanting to betray that I was home. Looking back through the peephole, I saw nothing. Maybe it had been a mistake, and the person had realized that they had the wrong door and went on. I waited for a couple of minutes, watching and listening for someone, and there was nothing. It wasn't until I turned to go to the living room that a new knock returned, the one more rhythmic and familiar. Knock, 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 knock. I gave a shudder as I realized I recognized what that was. Shave and a haircut, two bits. Biting my lip, I went back to the door and stared out again through the hole. There was still no one out there that I could see. Not that I was about to open the door to fully check. What if they were standing just to the side, waiting for me to crack the door? I debated calling the police, but I wasn't sure what to tell them or if they'd even come for something so small, so instead I called the building's handyman, George. I told him I thought a creepy guy might have followed me into the building, and now someone kept knocking at my door. Did he mind coming up just seeing if he saw anything? He sounded sleepy and irritated initially, but when he heard the fear in my voice, he said he'd be right there. Less than five minutes later, there was a new knock on the door, but this time it was quickly followed by George's voice. Miss Castillo? There's no one out here now. I'm going to double check the other floors, but I think you're okay. Someone did leave something out here, though. I unlocked the door and opened it part way. Left something? What? George pushed the item through the crack and handed it to me. There. That's for you, I guess. I... I think you're okay, but you be careful, alright? There's some bad things out here. I noticed that he said things instead of people, but I let it pass. George, is something wrong? He looked a little paler as he forced to smile and shook his head, never raising his eyes to me. No, I think I think everything's okay. Just keep your door locked, okay? Let me know if you have any more trouble. I've got to get back downstairs. I thought about reminding him to check the other floors, but then he was gone. Shutting the door back and locking it, I decided it didn't matter. I had a feeling he wasn't going anywhere except down to his own apartment to turn his own deadbolt. That feeling only grew when I turned the lights on and looked more closely at what had been left for me. Maybe it had been a mocking threat or a warning, but 
I knew what it felt like. A promise. So the next day, I gave my notice and moved most of my stuff into an extended stay hotel. Three weeks later, I was driving a moving truck across the country to my new home. The first thing I set out in my new house was the gift I got that night. I hate looking at it, but I need to see it. Be reminded of it, like a head or heart full of scars or the red letters scrawled underneath a bridge. It warns me to never let my guard down, to never assume that the darkness has nothing but empty fear waiting for me in its depths. Even writing this, I can see it on my mantle, gleaming a dull gray. I think it's made of pewter. It feels very heavy and old the few times I've been able to make myself touch it. Not that I need to anymore. I can still see it when I close my eyes. A thick-handled metal spoon with a deep, round bowl that tapers to a sharp edge at the outer rim. Not by initial design, but by use of a whetstone or a grinder. It's more of a razor now. Hard and cold and bitingly thin. Shaped for cutting and digging. And I know without checking that if someone were to stick it into my eye socket, they could slice through the lid and scoop my eyeball out like a bit of overripe melon. My hands are shaking as I write this last. I can't quite look at the mantle any longer, so I look out the window instead. It's not dark yet. But the shadows are growing fatter with each passing morsel of the day. I force myself to keep looking in the deepening twilight, and some nights I even tell myself I'm still not afraid. But the whisper in my heart isn't of bravery or strength. It's the dreadful double thrum of the gazelle's heart looking out into the darkness. Not looking out of courage, but out of terror and necessity and weak, trembling hope. Hope that when we look out into the darkness, nothing looks back or is drawing near.